Very good stuff. Fellas, we... We got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. There's a security guard. There's no security guard. We do have to get out of here. There will be a security guard. In the most polite Swiss way possible. I don't know. Maybe with a side of cheese. Keep one thing in mind. It's the French part of Switzerland. It's a little less polite than the rest of it. That's exactly right. All right, Watch Fam, what is good? This is Zach, and I am here with my co-host, Russ Kaplan. It is episode two of the Burlingame and Park podcast. Russ, welcome. Thanks. So good to have you as always. Russ, we are not actually in Burlingame. We are not. We are not in Burlingame anymore. We are, set the stage for us, set the stage for us. We are at Watches and Wonders, and we are sitting here with a direct sightline onto the paddock and Rolex uh, booths, along with behind us is Grand Seiko. And so we are here amongst some things that are reasonably impressive place to be hanging. Reasonably impressive place to hang in. We're kind of on this little soundstage looking uh, recording zone overlooking the valley of... Correct. You know, it's quite funny. This is... Uh, you know, long-time attendees to Basel World many years ago. Yes. The show had a very similar layout. Rolex was over there directly across from Paddock and next to Chopard. Uh, Correct. Tudor kind of in that main intersection. Where we are sitting currently, Russ was just remarking, there used to be, there was an escalator here. There was a giant staircase. <laughs> there was a giant staircase. It went up to uh, parts unknown, kind of the back nether regions of Basel World. <laughs> Man, that show... Um, what a difference Watches and Wonders is. It's this kind of tightly curated experience from brand to brand, whereas Basel World was this kind of sprawling mini city of spring bar retailers. Oh, and <laughs> there were, in the end, there were five different buildings, or maybe more I think it in was Basel, more. more, some of which you had to walk for maybe 20 minutes to get to. It was definitely sprawling as an understatement. All right, how about a hot take? Do you miss those days? Do you miss Basel? I do not. I think, I think that when Basel went away, it was like this giant exercise in sort of taking advantage of everybody who came. It was unreal. Yeah, it was. It did feel a little bit like extortion at times. Well, I'm not going to say I missed it. You know, it. as an example, if you went there long enough, sooner or later you went out to dinner, and sooner or later at some restaurant they put a menu down in front of you, you looked at it and go, well, this isn't so bad. And at which point the waiter would come over and say, oh, I'm so sorry, monsieur, we have given you the normal menu. Let me pull out the Basel World menu. And everything was like three to five times more. You just kind of went, oh I'm my God. I'm glad you told this story. I've, I was also given the wrong menu once. and uh, It's not a very unique experience. I, you know, yeah, it's not, for, it's not a unique experience. And it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's the Basel World or the restaurant world's equivalent of saying the quiet oh. thing out loud. Yeah. Like, uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't miss those days. Um, this is my second Watches and Wonders. Of course, the show was new last year. It's your second. It is. You were here last year. There's a lot more people here. All the Asian markets are here. So Correct. the show is, you know, 30, 40, maybe 50% more capacity. It's a, a lot last more year. It's people. pretty enormous. The, uh, the lines to get in, in the morning feel a little bit like uh, TSA line without pre. Correct. <laughs> Over Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving travel weekend. We're here in the show. Um, there's a number of amazing brands that topper retailers uh, the top of retails that has had amazing stuff to yeah. show. Uh, we're going to get into that in a bit. There's been a bunch of brands here at the show that we don't retail that have amazing stuff. Sure. It's been a heck of a show. Um, and before we get into kind of the impressions of everything, uh, we're missing somebody. We are. <laughs> Russ, what do you say we give, uh, give Rob a call? We should do that. Let's dial him in. All right. Good morning. How's it going, guys? Good. Not too bad. We're. How are the hollowed 
halls of the exposition in Geneva. Oh, man. They are it's, not hollow. They, they are, are not full hollow. full of people, let me tell you. They're it's not the hollow? They are not. They're full of people, let me tell it's you. It's the end of the day here. This show has, so last year at the 2022 Watches and Wonders show, none of the Asian markets could be here. All of the Asian markets are here, so it's a full capacity. Maybe a little um, over? Maybe a little over capacity, yeah. There's tons of people here, and the... Um, it's kind of happy hour now. People are kind of yeah. spilling out in front of the booths. And, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, wine. public days haven't started yet, right? They have not. They have not. And people people here are scared of public day. They are. <laughs> well, I, I know. There are a bunch of Topper customers. They're planning their offensive. They're, they're visiting shop boutiques <laughs> around the periphery. And they're, they're trying on watches, finding out what's orderable. Walking into stores, finding out if there are any watches, ready, oh, just wow. planning their strike. Oh, wow. What is the Topper fam chasing from Watches and Wonders 2023? What are, you, what are you hearing? All right, so interesting thing about Watches and Wonders from our perspective is we look at it two ways. We look at it in the sense of what is the most interesting from the brands that we sell, what are the most interesting innovations, what, what are people immediately after just without us doing anything or giving any commentary, and then what is interesting in the watch world as a whole. And I think this show has uh, definitely seen some great releases from our brands, and I think hopefully we can talk about some of uh, the ones that we find the most compelling, and you guys are on the ground, so that's great. And I think the show in general has shown some really interesting things that are kind of groundbreaking and really good jumping points for just commentary about watchers in general. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. What do, what do you feel like is kind of leading the way in terms of what people are chasing? I mean, Russ yeah. and I certainly had our own kind of opinions on what we think is the most interesting, but it's always it's always interesting to see kind of when you start to gauge comments on Instagram yeah. versus, you know, actual impressions in the metal. Because there were things that really surprised me when I handled them versus what I was reading about online. Well, the watches that were sort of, you know, the hard to get limited edition watches that were first off the board were the two the two sort of first Chopek releases. It's it, they're not calling it the skeleton. They're calling it what, what are they calling it? The revelation. 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 Yeah. Like there it is. Look at it. It's a revelation. Exactly. That, there's, there's the front. That was, there's the front of the movement. Yes. <laughs> that was the watch where if we had twenty allocated to us, we, we'd have sold twenty-four. And by God, we did not have twenty. But that was the sort of first <laughs> off the board. That and the the dark sector on the on the high end uh, luxury, but not a limited front. And I can't wait to hear you guys talk about it. Uh, the the Parmigiani. Uh, the new minute retropont. I can't. Yep. I, I can't wait for you guys to talk about what it's like actually holding this watch and how it is that you think it would be best used to work it. That was certainly hot, and I think hopefully we can dive into all of these watches a little bit. Grand Seiko Tentagraph has been by far a, a runaway hit, and let's not forget about Kermi. <laughs> we can't uh, the Oris. So, so Rob, the Oris Kermit the Frog. So far, you've hit the exact same things that the two of us hit when we were talking to each other. Mm -hmm. It tracks, absolutely. Yeah. And to, to start with the Rotraponte, I mean, I, I actually didn't have a chance to, to shoot or to handle the GMT Rotraponte, which came out last year and made plenty of waves. Okay. 
as kind of a as kind of a world first. One because they've never made it into store. They come and they go. They, yeah, they're just gone. Reserved very quickly. So I would have to imagine that the minute version is going to be more or less the same. I feel like Russ has a pretty right. good grasp on like the real world practicality of it. But like from the standpoint of it as a Tonda PF, it's exceptional. I mean, the Tonda PF is amazing. It adds another layer of kind of utility and function and. I love it. That right. wins thought, the award for the Parmigiani of watches and wonders, most likely to never be seen in the case. <laughs> I, I think for quite some time, that's fair enough. I think it's one of those watches where you kind of look at it and play with it and think to yourself, kind of like last year's, huh, how come nobody else thought of this? And what it does, it's incredibly easy to use. I've got a meeting in 20 minutes, or I've got a meeting in 22 minutes. I press the five-minute button four times, the one-minute button twice, and then I can do what usually happens with me in meetings. And I can look down at my watch and go, oh, crap, I'm two minutes late for my meeting. But you'll be able to then see it. So essentially what they've done is they've created an internal, much easier to see and visualize rotating bezel is really what it is. And, it's, and then you just put one press of the button, it's gone, and you're on to the next thing. It's just great. That's very clever. It's refreshing and reassuring to see that there are still complications and functions that have yet to be discovered. You know, people say that there's, there's no innovation left. We're, we're seeing another dive watch that's a little bit smaller, and they changed some text, and that's what everybody's talking about. But there's innovation still happening. It's just not happening on the front page of the newspaper. And I think that's, I think that's exciting. So what, um, what did you think when you actually handled it and had it on your wrist? What, what did you think of it, Zach? It's awesome. I mean, like I said, it, it feels and reads like a like a Tonda PF, which is a you love the color when you handle which, it. Oh, that's a good point. I really, do, I do really love the color of it. I feel like the Tonda PF, the the gray dialed version, is almost a little too monochrome for me. But this adds just a pop of color with the with the minute hand being orange. That sand color provides a little bit more contrast between case color and the dial itself. It doesn't quite all blend in so much. So that, it works really well for me. And it matches my shoes. Okay. I'm wearing these kind of khaki colored boots, so I feel pretty good about that. <laughs> well, yeah. good. That's, that's super cool to hear. You also mentioned Grand Seiko as well. As, yeah. As being the, something people were chasing. That was something Russ and I chatted this, a little yeah. bit about. There's plenty of interest there. Grand Seiko's yeah, first think... ever mechanical chronograph. And it seemed to me like the people that were really chasing this piece initially are the guys who understand the significance of this being Grand Seiko's first mechanical chronograph. Is that, is that track? Right. And I think we have to look at the word uh, tentograph. So when I first saw that it was called a tentograph, I think like probably many people who saw Grand Seiko unveils tentograph, you probably Googled tentograph and then really only found that tentograph came back to articles about this watch. So if you didn't know what tentograph meant, I think I think we can all. Uh, it's all safe to say at this point. It's a new word that hadn't been used for. So breaking it down, ten high beat, ten beats per second. Ta. I think that has to do. And my God, I probably said it wrong, but something about reference to the Japanese uh, word for three. So three day power reserve and high beat. And so I asked you, Zach. I'm sorry. And mechanical chronograph. I asked you. Can you think of any other high beat? chronographs that have three-day power reserves. And you told me that, well, whether there is or there isn't, that's really not even the main thing, that there's an interesting certification process. Yes. There is, yeah. The chronograph is certified for its accuracy while the chronograph is running, so it's not just while the 
the main kind of hour and minute well, second hands are running. So. Yeah, both parties. The watch is certified for its accuracy twice. Correct. Once without the chronograph running and then with it. And it's done in a whole bunch of different positions and different... It's, position. a, it's a very yep. broad testing range. It, it rivals any bra any sort of high-end test I've ever heard of. Indeed. And I, Blancpain and, and Zenith, and, you know, there's a, there's a number of amazing high-end, high-beat or high-frequency chronographs, but I don't, I don't know of... And, you know, they all have varying power reserves, I think, between 50 and 60 hours. Um, so the power reserve is absolutely significant, but I think Grand Seiko's commitment to the testing process is really quite interesting. And yeah. I don't think that's been... I'd, I'd love to be corrected on this, but it, it's I've it's not something we've ever heard of. Yeah, very cool. Um, how did it look? It looks oh, awesome. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's awesome. You know, there's the classic. You know, it's a cliche to say at this point, but uh, it wears smaller than the specs suggest. And I hate to say it, but it's absolutely true. It does. It does sound large, but it it, it wears very well. Yeah, it does. It does. And you know, Grand Seiko. You know, especially with their more modern cases. You know, more sculpting on the undersides shorter lug-to-lug -lug or more downward curved lugs, better integration with the end pieces on the bracelet. All of these things kind of help the ergonomics of the watch sit lower on the wrist. And that was kind of a hallmark of the Evolution 9 collection, is they really wanted to get the center of gravity of the watch case as low on the wrist as possible. And the Tentograph kind of adheres to that as well. It sits super low, it sits flush, it wears comfortably, it's titanium. So I would urge people that, that ask you about the, uh, you know, it has a 23 millimeter lug spacing, right. lug to lug is 51 and some, some small change. It sounds large, but you know, I have a six and a half inch wrist, it's a great, great size chronograph for me, I loved it. There are things about the watch also, um, at the risk of turning this watch into a tentograph hour, <laughs> that are also really significant for Grand Seiko fans. Or, I think people really love the pushers. And for the pushers to really make sense, you just have to look at the, the history of the pushers that have been on most Grand Seiko chronos. So most of the spring drive GMT chronos have had those really functional, oversized, screw-up, screw-down chrono buttons. I think that the nickname I've heard for them is the Hellboy. And it's really nice to see such understated pushers on this model. That's outstanding. I've actually never, I've heard, never that. heard that. I've never heard that either. I've never. Heard either. That's amazing. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it's true. I've, I've always kind of loved the quirky sub-dial layout of the spring drive chronographs. I thought it was kind of a call sign for Grand Seiko, and seeing a traditional 369 maybe, to me, felt a little uh, safe, but... I do, I do agree about, I do agree about the pushers. I think it did lose a little bit of the distinctiveness of the spring drive versions, but yeah, I think a lot of people are going to be really happy about that. Yeah. So, so, so you mentioned, you mentioned we, some Kermit. There's a, there's a lot of, every, we're seeing green here. Yep, we're not outside the Oris booth, but the Oris booth is very tastefully decorated in various shades of Jim Henson's finest work. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about I mean, let's talk about Kermit. And to me, the yeah, most interesting indeed. thing about Kermit really can be summarized by the surprise of your first reaction. And really, it, it re Kermit really begs the question of who Oris is, because in recent years, let's say the last four years, most of the times they've done collaboration. It's had to do with environmental focused projects, whether it's the upcycle or clean ocean or um, you know, a series of uh, whale shark. But here we are with a watch that really just seems dedicated to fun. 
And so I think the I think you were kind of surprised that Oris went in this direction, right? Yeah, I mean it didn't. I mean you're right. They haven't they haven't ever had a partnership that was just specifically for a lark, essentially. Yeah, it it does not come with a save the frogs campaign. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> but boy, what a missed opportunity! Kind I of know like exactly. The save the yeah, pond, save the frogs. A hundred dollars of every purchase goes to. Uh, Saving frogs from overbearing pig lovers, I think. Yeah, is it, saving. I think it should go to saving stuffed frogs. Like it's come every hundred bucks, we get to send up like a thread of needle to help fix them up or something. I don't know. <laughs> we're leaving opportunity on the table. Maybe that's, that's for maybe that's for the Miss Piggy collab. In yeah, I don't know. That's right. That's right. Uh-huh. I think that it really shows that you can be more than one person at one time. You can be a person with multiple moods. I mean, if you go back to Basel World days, RIP, you think about what was Oris like at Basel World. They were the fun company, the guys that that had the Oris party boat, and um, you know they, yep. they. I mean, Oris. I mean, their slogan used to be, you know, real watches for real people before go your own way. And they have always been sort of committed to fun. And it's just, I I really liked seeing them embrace it. And, you know, I look at our own limiteds and what we've done. I mean, certainly some watches we've done have been for, you know, have had charitable elements and some haven't. Um, Some are, so anyway, I I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. When I ran into, we were talking to Rolf in the booth, Rolf who's the CEO Morris, when I said to him, I said, this watch is awesome. It's so much fun. And he smiled and said, that's exactly what we were going for. So there you go, Rob. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, it exists purely for, you know, the, yeah. there, there are other watches that we've seen at the show that, you know, are not built around utility or function per se. And it's not to say the ProPilot X isn't utility or function because it absolutely is. It's a lightweight yeah. pilot watch. But, you know, there are watches here that exist purely for tool the, the joy or the, the intent of the designer to make something interesting or unique. It's a very interesting mind shift to, to move away from utility and purpose and function and move specifically towards yeah, uh, enjoyment. Enjoyment of design, yeah. enjoyment of partnership, enjoyment of, um, you know, whatever that, whatever that sake may be. And I did, you know, I did check because everybody's been photographing, I was telling Russ this earlier, uh, everybody's been photographing the date wheel with Kermit on, which is the first right. month is, is Kermit. Um, the rest of and the they also uh, the dial. It matches the dial. It's the same color. It's the same bright green. It looks looks great. So fear not. And we didn't we didn't get a lot of them, but they actually did deliver a few of them to us yesterday. So I have held Kermit in my froggy little hand, and I have seen him. And I've already shown it to a few people. And I mean, I think it really. It really ha- does look like it's something that's going to spread some happiness. Good. But awesome. I, I want to point out, so let's compare just the concept of impact and let's compare the Kermit to the Tentograph. That's, and I know whenever you talk about something like, you know, I remember you were saying, what's best in show? What do you think's best in show? And it's like, it's kind of like comparing, you know, in, in the finals, you know, the Pomeranian against the German Shepherd. I mean, how do you compare two things that are so dr- dramatically different and then decide what's best in show? But, but what's interesting is sometimes a watch that has an entirely new case, new platform, new mechanical movement, 
you weigh that level of innovation against something that's basically just cosmetic for feeling. And it's just, it's interesting, like, you know, the new Rolex Oyster Perpetuals, you know, that are, you know, there, there's nothing new there in, in terms of design. It's, it's just always interesting to see how impact can come from theme or impact could come from like a ground up mechanical change. And it's um, it's always interesting when you think about what what was the most attention getting thing at the show. It's just interesting to think about what it is that actually moves you to end up wanting to focus on something. For sure, it's all emotion based. I mean, I think for for me personally, the best in show was a new case and a new dial and a new direction for a singular line in the Zenith Pilot. I mean, I think Russ and I both yeah. really love that collection. But that's not so much emotion-based so as it is, like, finally we have a fully realized, fully cohesive pilot line that kind of carries the torch from the early 1900s into something really special. And then on the flip side of that, you have the Oris, which is the opposite and is purely emotion-based from a cosmetic standpoint. But I feel like they both tap into this, the same kind of desire for something new and something interesting that kind of speaks to you. So let's talk about that pilot watch. Um, you guys just saw that today, right? Yep. It was very good. Russ has I um, love that watch. Yeah, I remember I said to Russ, Russ, I really want to focus on uh, on the steel chrono because I love the way the three o'clock subdial gives you traces of the early rainbows and I and the I and I just love it. And he was like, Not so fast, Rob. Let's talk about the forty millimeter steel pilot. So tell me about it, Russ. When you first said it to me about the chronograph, I said no it didn't. And, it, and you said, yes, it did. And it turned out we were both right, because when I originally saw the prototypes of it, we saw them three months ago, they didn't show the rainbow in the prototypes. And now that I see it and it's on it, I just, and they changed the way the second hand is on that watch. It's much brighter on the chronograph second totalizer. It is fantastic. So I, I got to say, I hate to say I've come around to thinking it's about what you like best, but I kind of have in this one. Though, the three-hand watch, which is really, Zach should speak to this, because he just fell in love with that watch. The three-hand is awesome. It, it's a, Zenith watches, you know, for the better part of the last five to ten years, have always been, to be at least personally, they've been extremely highly refined. They've been innovative and like, like classical from a mechanical standpoint but they've lacked a certain kind of edge to them. You know, a, a real world, grittiness is the wrong word, but like a, you know, Zenith hasn't made a pure tool watch, I think. Practicality almost maybe. tool watch. Super easy to read. Yeah, Just, yeah. They've come close, but I mean, you know, even the Defy, the Defy Classic, I feel it came very close, but it was also a very highly polished, highly refined, kind of chic. Of even the skyline is very chic. I mean, it's like a, you know, a royal oak to a certain degree. It has this kind of chic appeal to it. The pilot is the opposite of all of that, but it, you know, it, it retains kind of all of the hallmarks of Zenith for sure, but it, there's an edge to it and I really, really love it for that. It's the first Zenith I've seen in a very, very long time that, that felt like something really awesome. I think he wants to take one home with him. <laughs> So a couple of questions about the watch from just comments that I've had. So first thing is, when people look at the grid pattern of the dial with uh, sort of the raised horizontal lines, right. uh, Zach, you've, um, you know, you, at times you've, you've done work for Houdinki, you've done work for blog to watch and you've covered all brands beyond topper brands. Mm -hmm. How unique does that, grid, does that grid look and how much of it do you feel like it's um, evoking an Aquanaut? 
Yeah, none of it. It's not a grid. They're just horizontal lines. And to me, you know, Zenith said they look, Zenith said they're designed to evoke like vintage, fuselage of vintage aircraft. But um, I get heavy like Ramoa suitcase vibes from them. You know, you get this like the you know, classic. You know what I think? I just realized something. Like the when, ribbed luggage. You know, when, and that says travel. When Omega brought out the 300 Pro, they shot photos of that Pro that made the lines on the face look so deep, it looked like one of those toys you, your kid, you never want your kid to touch in the doctor's <laughs> office, the slots that go back and forth because God knows what germs are. But it looked crazy deep, and you saw it in person, it was yeah. much lighter in scale. This is the absolute opposite, yep. where it's actually heavier in scale in person than it seems in the picture. Yep. And because exactly it has right. a deeper slotting on it, it looks really nothing like the other. Are you talking like 1996, 253180 yeah. Omega rests? Is that what you mean? Those old watches. No, no, no. He's, we're talking current no, the, laser engraved. Current laser engraved ones. The pictures of the current laser engraved ones. Okay. On the waves. Got it. They look super deep in the picture. Yeah, you saw them true. in person. They were kind of light scale. This is the true. opposite. Where it, look, it looks light scale. I agree. I agree. They're really, really heavy grooves. I have a Zero Halliburton rolling luggage case. I've, I mean, there's hundreds of Ramoa suitcases rolling around the trade show floor, which is pretty typical here. It looks like a vintage Ramoa case to me. Those cool. heavy ribs. They're, they're thick and wide, and it's not a grid pattern. The Aquanaut, which, you know, there's two call signs from the Aquanaut that people are picking up on the pilot. One was partially the dial, which I, which I don't believe, because it's not a grid or a grenade pattern. And the second is the is the flat bezel, which has the brushing on it, which is which is certainly similar, but the bezel on the pilot is actually about half the diameter, and it's stepped on the edges. Correct. So you get this you get this really interesting layering between the edge of the bezel and the edge of the crystal that is again very much unlike the Aquanaut. But I can I can see where the resemblances came from because those head-on shots certainly suggest that there's some similarity there, but it's it's dramatically different in person and quite a bit heavier. It's quite a bit heavier. You know, the Aquanaut, I was so, also always very surprised that it's this kind of like dainty yes. sports watch. Yep. Uh, this is nothing, nothing like that. It's a, it's an El Primero movement. It's not an elite movement, so, so it's, it's a little bit thicker. it's kind of a watch, yeah. Yeah, it's a tool watch, yeah. And if you look at the Chronomaster, Chronomaster Sport, Chronomaster Original, it seems that Zenith had gone kind of away from the Caliber 400, which was just the basic, the basic, you know, 10-beat movement. And when you actuate the chronograph, you know, they're, those are running much, much faster. This is, in both chronograph and wads, just a 10-beat movement again, right? Yes. That's correct. Yes. Okay. No, and if anything, you could say this is kind of the heir to... Uh, the, do, do you remember the Big Date special from like like 13, 14 years ago? I mean, I that do, watch that, won a, yeah, a GPGH yeah. award. I mean, that was a that was a, the last, you know, Grand Date basic pilot chrono I think they did. Right. The difference here is they've got several technical innovations that didn't exist in that watch. The first of which is the grand date on the watch is done where the two date wheels are at the same level. So one date wheel. Okay. Side of that was going to be my nit to pick was because the, that's right. That bit, that pilot big date uh, special no, was wasn't like that. They were of different heights. So that was going to be my first have, question was, are they the they same also, heights? No, they, yeah, they are. They also patented a process where it's got an instantaneous date change, which is brand new, which is interesting. Really? It is, I've never seen anything it has quite a, like it. It has a very satisfying, I, I wouldn't say it's a longer, like snap at the stroke of midnight, but 
There was this very close. instantaneous. It's close. It's, it's surprisingly it's enough. It's very close. It really surprised us, I think. It's very close. So, you know, you have, you have the two date discs, which are on the same plane. You have that instantaneous, that super satisfying snap. And then you have really, really the engagement on the pushers, like the modulation on the pushers is it's it's very, a very soft. satisfying, they, soft. They actually, when we saw the watches, and I've never seen me do this before. They showed you how many, how much pressure it took. They had rated it of how much pressure it took on this compared to either an older model or somebody else's model. And this thing is so soft and satisfying to push. It just feels. It doesn't feel like anything I've ever no, played felt before. It's effortless, and the and you know the center mounted seconds hand immediately jumps to life. So and, that's pretty cool. Uh, it's super smooth. The whole the whole package has a. Again, it has it has this kind of rugged Land Rover, Range Rover type aesthetic to it. You know what's interesting because there was that's right there was the there was the Range Rover tie-in with the Correct. Defy from three Correct. years ago. It was introduced in Dubai, and um, that to me felt like it felt like they had debadged something. You know, the, the, it was a it was a highly polished Zenith that they simply just bead blasted. But to me, it never, ever felt like a tool watch because it was still this old skin. But the Pilot, you know, being kind of revamped from the ground up with the new movement and everything designed to be, you know, achieve a level of cohesion um, that we didn't get before. It feels like a true tool watch from the ground up as opposed to creating a tool watch out of something that maybe wasn't a tool watch before, uh, which I think is just a different, it's a different approach to design. It's a different approach to... Um, to the full execution of it. And I think, I mean, people are going to love to see this on the wrist. And the, the rainbow tie-in is just kind of like icing on the cake. It's just, I, they did it in a very good way. It's very, I mean, it's very both colorful very and subtle at the same time. Yeah, I, I, this I is a watch you can, on the one hand, wear out, and then you wear it to a meeting, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the Pilot, Pilot Collection is going to have a lot of fans uh, this summer. My understanding is that the... Um, the three hands are delivering sure, imminently, imminently, and the chronograph In a month is or so. uh, April, mid-spring? About a month. Yeah, a month or so. Not too bad. Very cool stuff. It was a good showing for, for topper brands, I think. It was a good showing for brands that we, we don't carry. There's a lot of exciting stuff here. Yeah. Everybody's talking about the Ingenieur. Really incredible. Or as execution. I like to call it... As I like to call it, the, I, the IWC is Gambit because whenever I look at that dial, I want to like move like like Rook to Queen Five because I just look at that checkerboard <laughs> pattern. Chessboard. Yeah, I mean it is uh, it is a Gambit. It is an expensive. It's an expensive yes. watch. They jumped. They jumped two price categories. I think you know, that's what I heard. I, you know, it was a it was a well placed rumor last year that the new Ingenieur was was imminent. And I think, you know, we were all kind of expecting it, but I, I don't think I know anybody who's, who would have guessed that the pricing was going to land where it was. So that certainly cooled my expectations of it a little bit, but I do still really love that watch. And I, I think it's titanium. It's really, really awesome. Russ, did you, any, did you see anything else that you liked from the, from the show? I'm trying to think real carry. You know, you know what we do carry that had something that was unusual that I'm going to forget about because it was just so unusual is um, Bell and Ross had a watch. What was it made out of? The whole watch had loom built into the case. What was that thing? I, I don't know if we can talk about this one yet. Oh, is it but, not out yet? Uh, it's not out yet, but... Um, Strike this part of this conversation. 
I don't think we can talk about okay. that one. Just we'll yet. pretend we never talked about. Yeah, this but it's uh, it's been the ex, the ex. You know, if you're not mildly breaking an embargo, you're not really doing a podcast. <laughs> I'm here exactly for everybody. Right. That's exactly right. That's like, we uh, we ask for forgiveness over permission. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Rob, what did you what did you see from non-topper brands that uh, really jumped out? Okay, so the thing that people have wanted to talk about the most because it's such a um, such a departure for them is the display back uh, Platinum Daytona, and uh, I think that it's really interesting because for every brand that we sell for for the past ten years, companies have featured. From a four hundred dollar Hamilton to you know open work you know high end Glasuta skeleton dial, skeletonization displaybacks are such an important part of you know. There's always a balance between form and function, and displaybacks are form. So it was really interesting <laughs> seeing um, Rolex sort of embrace it for the first time. I feel like more people have wanted to talk about the fact that they did a, a display back and sort of what it means. I, I have a question for you. Um, mm. So if you actually forget the fact that, yes, they did it for the first time, and you actually just look at from a qualitative standpoint, like, well, what does it compare to? Did you did you, did you get yeah. to see, um, at least through a window, did you get to actually yeah, look at the finishing? This is, a, this is a very good question because we've, we've been talking about this with a few few friends and colleagues here. And I think it's interesting, if, if, you were, if you were to make the first display case back in the history of the brand, I think maybe you would embellish the movement a little more. I don't know. Right. You know, I, you so, know people are talking about the, the, you know, the price range for this is, you know, this is Ed White money. It's not Ed White money. No, it's not. This, this is much more. That's no, much more. Uh, but you know, an Ed White well, is is a work of maybe cannabis Ed White money. Maybe, yeah. maybe cannabis Ed White. No, I think it's even more than that. I think it's even more than that. It's platinum. Um, and so, you know, the, the, can the I tell fact, you what what Watson reminded me of? Oh sure. So you're and you're gonna laugh. But the fact that this was their first skeletal watch, it reminded me of that Grand Seiko limited edition quartz watch from four years ago. And you're like, how could you compare Grand Seiko quartz to the first ever Platinum Daytona? I mean, I guess it's only a comparison in one little respect. It, it like when you looked at that display back Grand Seiko quartz, there it was battery showing and there was nothing really special or artistic or done about it. It was just like, this is the thing we do, and the thing we, did, we, we do in and of itself is beautiful, and it, it is worth showing. So to me, it seemed like some kind of meta-commentary by them that the full machined displayback of what we do from an industrial standpoint in and of itself is beautiful. And I think that displaybacks are interesting in the sense of the connection they create between the person looking at them and the thing itself. So to some people, seeing a $500 Hamilton displayback when you've never really looked at one before, just seeing the displayback of a 2824 is in and of itself really rewarding. And so it seemed interesting that Rolex just chose this with it, like you said, very little hand elaboration as their first piece, almost like, yeah, almost like this is what we do. For sure. But, but the customer for the platinum Daytona anniversary edition is not someone who would be new to this and would be enamored with simple finishing versus, versus not. 
I, I would argue that you know the 8800 and the 8900 series movements that Omega uses, Speedmaster notwithstanding, have uh, they're machine finished. They are certainly. You know, the, the, there's no hand finishing in there that I'm aware of, but there is still a certain I don't know. What I would say about all this is I am the first one to admit that I am prone to a bit of self-interest in all of this. And it's always interesting for me to look at something. And I want to make sure I'm carefully divided out. And I don't like it because we have it and therefore I like it. And I don't exactly think that the Rolex looks bad. And for sure the Omega looks doesn't look bad. They're both good looking. And the question really becomes, I think Rob was actually onto something. You're looking at this thing where it just sort of is what it is. And the fact that they sort of just did it, it almost... It's kind of, this is it, and this is just exactly at face value like you'd expect. So here you are, now you can be like a watchmaker and look at this thing. I don't know, it's a certain, it's a certain charm to it. There is. Yeah, and I mean, I guess, you know, Rolex has always finished its movements, even though you can't see them. They're finished the way they're finished. There was no reason to do anything different than how they've always done it, with the exception of, this is what it looks like now. <laughs> it, is, it is the ultimate Rolex way, isn't it? Yes. Really yeah. interesting. But, you know, this this show has been, you know, there's been a lot of people here, much more than uh, than than last year's show. I mean, I think it's, oh, things are certainly trending trending back towards, towards normalcy. There's been a lot of interesting social commentary around some of Rolex's releases. There's been a lot of interesting innovation. You know, I feel like a lot of the things that people have been talking about and getting excited about with what Tudor is doing, is exciting kind of in its own little silo. There's been something interesting happening at nearly every brand that we've yeah, stopped into true. in some capacity. And I feel like I've not been able to say that in other shows and it's certainly in the past not years. Always so I don't know. It's there's a lot of people here and <laughs> sometimes you know the, so the, the line to get you, in Zach. the line to get in felt a little bit like uh, not having, you know, the right the right status or whatever to get on the airplane. <laughs> like uh, getting stuck in a long TSA line, but uh, other than that, what, what was your question, Rob? So, obviously, I've, I found the, of, of things we don't sell, the Daytona to be just sort of particularly interesting because, again, of sort of the bigger questions it asks. And, you know, and again, the choice that's, choices that they made. What did you think I was going to bring up? Yeah, maybe the maybe the puzzle Rolex. I think that's the that's that's, what I thought. that's been the most kind of out of the box. People have been talking a lot about that. What are they doing? Line in a sand type situation of the show. That's that and classic it's, piece that people will love or hate. It's interesting because Rolex has, has been buzzy at past shows for things they've not done or because they've been boring or because they've played it so safe. Them playing it so safe and being so boring is what makes them the topic of the show. This year, them going in the opposite direction and doing something really dramatic, and I mean the, the puzzle, uh, the, the hand-drawn puzzle reference and not the Daytona has actually made them the conversation piece. So, you know, it's, they're, they're a brand that consistently fails to surprise and, and consistently disappoints many collectors who are, you know, looking forward to the fast-paced change in kind of the social media landscape of like, we always need new, we always need better every year, every six months, every whatever. Um, Rolex has never been that way. This year, they gave us something that no one was expecting, and, and people yeah. are losing their minds over it. So it's pretty fun to see. Did you I see mean, anything been... that you loved at a paddock? No. <laughs> Russ, is, Russ is shaking his head. Yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, I don't... 
Yeah, I don't. I mean, I, I, I got excited about Chopard. I got excited about Parmigiani. I feel like those are brands that are doing really interesting things. And those are brands that are eager to cater to new collectors and, and watch lovers. There's no love lost for me at Paddock. <laughs> but um, we are, uh, we're, getting the, we're getting the warning. We're about to be kicked out of the halls. The happy hours are ending. People are kind of shuffling not to the shuttles. Though, right? <laughs> These hollows. They're actually becoming a lot more hollow. They're getting a lot more hollow now that there's uh, not, I'm not so sure many about the hollow, but here. they're definitely getting more hollow. Yeah. We got another um, another jet lagged sleepless night. One more day on the show floor, and, and then a, we and are back in Burlington. What is that? And a Zenith event together. We do have a Zenith event that we have to go to. Cool. Survival of the fittest. Well, that's right. Well, it's uh, great having you guys on the ground, and uh, I think this podcast shows. Um, just one little thing, like, like I remember like when you and I would go to Basel world, like I would always want to show like, like, wait, there's a, th there's a 30th pro pilot in this different color and we didn't photograph it and we didn't talk about it. And you'd be like, stick to the high level pieces. So, um, I don't, I, think I don't miss those days. Yeah. I think, when, I think it, I think it's really interesting, you know, just talk about four, three on three, four, five watches that we think are interesting. And then okay. a couple of macro things Actually, and a little more detail than honestly, just, you know, you taking a snapshot of every watch you, that every brand did. No, you hit upon something, which is if there's one big trend at the show, you just hit upon it without meaning to. And it's interesting when you said Zenith with the God knows how many variations of the watch. Zenith on this entire line had a very small number of watches. And so all of these pilot watches that we're excited about, there were two chronographs and two three-handed watches. With Oris, they had a frog and a couple of aquases. I mean, honestly, it was very compact and a few other things, but it wasn't like past years. None of these brands are managing to put out 60 new pieces. Right. And we could say, thank goodness to all of this. And the end result of it is it allows us to much more easily talk about what they're doing. Frankly, in a way, it makes me more excited about it. It's that's the exact a, opposite effect. That's a really good point because it, 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 lets you, it lets you more clearly understand what the brand is trying to do yeah. as, from like a marketing standpoint or a vision standpoint as opposed to here's one in green and here's one in blue and here's a hundred of these it, other things. It's, it's a much more tightly curated experience right. which lets us see things quite frankly from a much from a bird's eye view and it's a much more satisfying or, or to put it slightly differently i think that the and brands are being significantly more thoughtful with us could not agree more you know what i can tell well, you this, the other, this, this is mean, the this is this will be the end of the here are 10 watches you missed from the show because yeah. <laughs> no one no one's going to be missing anything yeah from any here, of are the 64, because, here are 64 here are 64 aura sleepers you missed um exactly. but i think it also has to do with you know, here we are post-COVID, but I think it also has to do with the way the industry and the way shows are different because these shows are designed to feature, I'm not going to say capsule collection, but, you know, one collection or one theme or maybe two themes from a brand. And they don't fire all their bullets into the ceiling like they did 10 years ago at these shows. No. They no. use these they shows because they, 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 I think they've realized the industry is most interesting when re releases come throughout the year 
because yep. I was just going to say that they, so much. I know 100%. they all know there will be a next week and there will be a next month and there are other opportunities to create news. That's good for everybody. I mean, it's good for the consu- it's, it's good for media because they don't have to cover a hundred thousand things at the show in one week. And then there's nothing for the rest of the year. And quite frankly, it's good for the consumers as well, for the buyers, the collectors, they can, they can have time to digest everything. They can make a choice. Yes, this is for me. No, this isn't for me. Maybe I'll wait for the next thing because there probably will be a next thing. It just, it's it just it's good for the brands. It's good for the brands. It's good for everybody. There's, I, I, feel, I see very little downside to this, to this approach to the show. Very good stuff. Cool. Rob, we will see you back in Burlingame very soon. Stay dry and stay warm. And uh, thanks for joining us on this one. Russ, thank you. All, All right, right thanks, We'll talk to you soon. All right, bye-bye.